Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony and I would like to thank you for joining us once again for this, our second bonus episode. This time around, we're delighted to bring you more content from Hulanta 2019, Atlanta's local Doctor Who convention. This week, we have a recording of the Quatermass and other early British sci-fi panel that was led by myself and friend of the podcast Louis Robinson. This panel was chosen for recording as it links in with our brief discussion from our very first episode around the sci-fi landscape in Britain prior to Doctor Who. As you are listening through this, please keep in mind that this was recorded on a small portable recording device, so there are times that the recording is a little... quirky. There is plenty of audience participation, and there's also a little bit of background noise at times, so you'll really get the feeling like you were there. That said, there have also been a small number of edits to the recording, to really try and ensure that you have the best listening experience possible. So, sit back and enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Quatermass uh, and Early British Sci-Fi. Louis and I have been talking and uh, ahead of this, and what we want to do is basically cover everything up to Doctor Who. So I guess we should introduce ourselves first. My name is Anthony Williams. I am one of the hosts of the Watchers in the Fourth Dimension podcast. I'm recording this for a possible use as a live episode, should the recording quality be good. And with me on the panel, I have... Louis Robinson, and for this panel... I used to work for the BBC, and I worked in the early years of my BBC career from 1969 to 1975 as a film editor in a thing called the Gomont British Pictures Studio, which was called Lime Grove. Since then, it's been pulled down. Lime Grove was a wonderful uh, early British movie studio in which they filmed all sorts of wonderful things, including The Lady Vanishes. And the, there were people who worked there who also worked in the early film business. And of course, I worked on Doctor Who in 74. Uh, so that's my background for this particular panel. I have to keep editing the CV for different panels. <laughs> and I guess the, the most notable thing from a Doctor Who perspective about Lime Grove is I think it was Lime Grove Studio D was where Doctor Who started. When I worked at Lime Grove, we used to walk from the cutting room, which was on the seventh floor, down in an elevator, lift, and then on the first floor, we would walk through to the canteen, and we would walk through the studio in which The Lady Vanishes and the first episodes of Doctor Who were made. It was about the size of this room. <laughs> it was amazing, amazing how small it was. Was that the studio where, if the lights were on too high, the, the sprinklers would come on? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and if you pulled, no, that, it was Star Trek, wasn't it? Where if you pulled the flush in the restroom, you could hear it on the set. <laughs> and the set was on two different levels. <laughs> so, as we delve into early British sci-fi, I think one thing that's really key to note is the BBC was actually the first broadcasting corporation in the world to televise a piece of science fiction. Yes. And in the, I want to say the 30s, they, they made a, um, a production of a play called Are You Are? Was by Carol yes. uh, Sapek, Capek, um, and and just from there, I mean, the BBC established its pedigree for making sci-fi very early in its history. And and in the fifties, 
they did an adaptation of Caves of Steel, starring some unknown person named uh, Peter Cushing, and they did an adaptation of 1984, mm-hmm. and they did all these things in the 50s. I was talking to Anthony earlier, and I said, do we include 1984? Of course. And he said, of course. 1984 went out live. It took the country by storm. What was it, 1950-something? <laughs> yeah, and uh, it, it was done live. It was shocking to people to see. The next day, I think it went out first on a Wednesday, and the newspapers were full of this shocking program. The cast was taken aback, and they had to do it again live on the Saturday, (laughs) knowing that they were a hit. Isn't that extraordinary? And I think there is a video of it still available, of the first, uh, uh, I think it may be not the whole video, but bits of it. But it's the idea of putting putting rats, putting your head into a, a cage of rats and all that stuff. It was just, it was just amazing. And of course, I, on that note, like most early British TV, most of what we're going to talk about is is missing or only in fragments. Now, why is that? Why is it that uh, that we can see uh, American TV going back to the prehistory and you can't see British TV? The answer is that British TV was done on videotape and uh, American TV was done on film. Thanks to Lucy, they had a three film, three cameras on 35 millimeter film, and that doesn't degrade. Videotape does degrade. That's why a lot of the stuff was done live and never recorded. The stuff that was recorded, like the early Doctor Who's, were recorded on video, which has degraded, and only kept to a decent standard because they were filmed. Uh, they actually had a, a, a camera facing a projector they filmed it, they had it on negative film, 16 mil, and they would export it all around the world, which is why you get all the stuff from all around the world. Now, of, of course, you know, one early experiment, and the reason we, we have just the two episodes of the very first Quatermass serial, the Quatermass experiment, was because they were experimenting with video, video well, and recording. So if you watch those two episodes, it's hilarious. They've literally pointed something at a screen, and at one point, a fly lands on the screen. You see this fly <laughs> scuttling around for a little bit. So. Aaron. Question. Um, okay, so video would be great. So if they're taking the camera and they're filming the video monitor, why didn't they just put it on film in the first place? Money? Go on. Well, the tradition of TV is using electronic video cameras. And the production would be cut on a switcher live as it's happening. And if you if you stopped all that and did it the Lucy way with three or four film cameras running, the expense just shoots through. Um, also, if you did it like the motion pictures made with one camera, you're talking about taking four four times the amount of time. Still, all has to be edited again. Yeah. Uh, also, the technology wasn't really there. I mean, no. Television was just electronic cameras, and that, that's how that, that is now. When I first joined the BBC, remember 1969. On that first year, we were sent to different departments, and I went to drama sequences, which was the 16 millimeter film that goes between the two studio videos. There's a famous Monty Python sketch where the guy is surrounded by by video, by by film. My God, we're on 16 mil. Let's go back into the <laughs> well. The the tradi- it was in Ealing, Ealing Film Studios, and the the film editors said, "You've joined the right department. They can't edit video. 
<laughs> Boy, did they have to eat their words 10 years later. And it just took over completely. And now you even film on video and make it look like film. I mean, video on video, tape, tape and record on video, and it looks like film because you can just make it look like film. So, But anyway, so we go back to the, so the, these early, these early, I, I kind of dispute what Anthony says a bit because it's been my view, particularly from the Doctor Who experience, that the BBC regarded science fiction a lot as a second-rate thing. What they really wanted to do were classic serials, and I keep saying what they really wanted was another production of Pride and Prejudice. Yes. That's, in fact, I can prove that, because when I worked on Teleaddicts, which was 13 years long, it's a quiz show about quiz, about television, I used to go down to the Radio Times at the beginning of each season and look through the Radio Times to see any programs I'd missed. And I couldn't find Doctor Who. I mean, and starting uh, uh, children's Doctor Who. I couldn't find Star Trek. There was some you know, Daniel Deronda or something on the front page of the Radio Times. And there is a Saturday as a replacement for Doctor Who, new series Star Trek. That much, I guess the cast list, that's it. So. In a funny way, the production people on the BBC who came from Oxford and Cambridge literature degrees didn't really get science fiction in the way that Americans got science fiction. You did in a, a way with, with, um, with things like uh, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone and things like that, but there wasn't that big tradition of sci-fi as such. But some great movies, some great shows slipped through the cracks. One of them being my favorite of all. Actually, I don't even think there's a recording of called The Big Pull, which was about two guys going up in a space capsule and coming back. One was brain dead and the other one was both of them. And as they go through, the four become two, eight become four, and eventually the whole world is full of zombies. And it started off, and that was the big pull. I used to watch it every Saturday. It was about 12 episodes, and it scared me to death. It was in the, in the tradition of early Doctor Who's. You know. But I was going to say to Anthony that I'd like to just say one thing earlier than that. What really came over underground in Britain were comics. And the Eagle comic, which you may have heard of, is absolutely vital because in the Eagle comic, which was produced as a Christian comic, was Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. And the only way Dan Dare now lives, because the copyright was bought by some film company who suppressed it, is that some of the uh, illustrations of Doctor Who you see now from Radio Times is done by the same artist, Frank Bellamy. And that, that's where Doctor Who, uh, that's where it, it follows. And it's so funny because they started this Christian comic, The Eagle, with the life of Christ, a serial. But the thing that really took off was Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. You know? And anybody who was... Were you in Britain at that time? Yes. I, yeah. I, I was a little... I, I'm a little bit older than that, but I can remember seeing old copies of it. Yes, that's right. And they also used to produce the Eagle Annual, yes. which also had Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. And, and the artwork was amazing. Yeah, I'm, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's wonderful. But that's, I mean, it's so interesting that in Eng in England, uh, we didn't get a lot of American TV, and what we did see was in comic form, in the Dell comics and in the Eagle, yeah. and then and, and then slowly 
I mean, Doctor Who was the big breakthrough. But I mean, I don't think the importance of Dan Dare can be understated. So if you, there's uh, someone out there, her name's Elizabeth Sandifer. She writes a phenomenal blog called Tardis Eruditorum. And when she's talking about those early episodes of Doctor Who, she talks a lot about Dan Dare and the influence that Dan Dare had on British televised sci-fi, including Doctor Who. So, I mean, I've, I've never read any Dan Dare myself, but... Oh, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, we used to just wait for that damn comic to come out. And there were other, other characters produced in it. Harris Tweed was a, uh, a comedy character. There was a guy called Lucky Luke who was a cowboy. But it was Dan Dare, Dan Dare, Dan Dare. Well, it started in the 50s. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I met, um, when I was doing a show called The Originals, which I produced, I met some of the people responsible for doing that. I met the, I met the daughter of the guy who started it, the Reverend something something, and she had a very big head. <laughs> and she was the model for the, the baddie of Dan Dare called, yeah, the, the Mekon. The Mekon was green and had a very large head. And there was a photograph we had of her, of the Mekon, and her as she was. And she actually said, you know, they used to say, that's, that's what we need. We need to draw her as the Mekon. And he had, a, he had a, a sidekick called Digby. So it was very kind of old 1950s. You know, the posh guy was, was Dan Dare and the, the second in command was, was Digby. And he was, yes, gov, no gov, all that stuff. But I think, I think the people in television, the producers in television who dared say they liked um, sci-fi, needed every help they could get. And they got it a lot by books. And, I mean, Bill can probably tell you about all the books in the, what, late, early 50s that came out of Britain. Well, let's talk about John Wyndham. John Wyndham, yeah, yeah. In fact, British the, 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 the tripods. The tripods. The, no, no, no. no. Not the tripods. Day of the Triffids. Day of the Triffids. The Triffids, tripods, the three somethings. <laughs> but but uh, the witch cuckoos, also called Village of the Dam. But his stuff was what I consider British science fiction. It's always about the end of the world. So it must be really depressing to Well, I guess you were, it was the Empire. Going back to an earlier, earlier panel, it was about the Empire being destroyed. <laughs> yeah, dysfunctional. I mean, I, I can't understand why it was that it took so long for sci-fi to catch on. And even when Doctor Who started, there was resistance in the BBC to something as, as naive, as, 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 as we would say, under the arm, as, as, as science fiction. But early science fiction was watched by millions of people who liked it, mainly young people, because I don't think people who fought in the Second World War were interested in science fiction at all. But what's interesting is you talk about the resistance in the BBC, but on the other side, on ITV, oh. in the early, late 50s, early 60s, you had Sidney Wilson joined the Associated Broadcasting Corporation, which was one of the regional producers for ITV, and he came over to the UK from Canada and said, I want to do sci-fi, and he produced Out of This World, yes. which was a Great. serialized, uh, not serialized, anthology. an anthology series. Thanks really, to, really good. Um, they showed it here in America in the mid-60s. And only, well, so there was Out of This World, and then there was Out of the Unknown, which came later. Out of This World, only one episode survived, yeah. Lost Little Robot. And wow. I mean, the sets are basic. Yeah, that's a Cutner story. Lost, lost Robot. Uh, Asimov, I think. Okay. I don't think, yeah, it could be um, But I mean, it was presented by Boris Karloff, yep. and 
I mean, it was phenomenal what I've seen of it, what you can see. And then he also did the the Pathfinders trilogy over in uh, ABC, uh, which was preceded by Target Luna. Target Luna's lost, but the three Pathfinders serials still exist. And uh, one of the early BBC ones, which I can remember watching, was A for Andromeda, which was another a great show about uh, a robot woman. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they remade or... They remade it, yes. Remade it. Yeah. I've seen that. And it's pretty good. But, I seen but it, says, it says something about the British mentality at that time. That, I mean, Br Britain celebrates its tradition and is held back by its tradition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's probably the reason why sci-fi didn't take off. Also by the fact that the place was being run by people who didn't understand popular culture. Until the 90, until Monty Python. What is this Monty Python? <laughs> there were still people who wore tweed jackets and uh, drew, drew things on the tables with pens and were all members of the armed forces who would come into the BBC and became the officer class, if you like. And we younger guys were saying, what about, what about? And they were going, no, no, no. That's not the sort of thing we do Old boy. <laughs> so it wasn't until that un until that incredible revolution of the goon show, the goon show, the goon show. What's this all about? Monty Python, which was a fluke. It should never have happened. Uh, and then, big one. Fifty years. Isn't that amazing? It's getting a phone call from a friend saying, "Have you seen this program? Nobody's mentioning it, but you got to watch it." So I watched episode two and thought, "This is amazing." And the and the people who ran the BBC were. Absolutely perplexed as to what it was all about. All that came, all that came from the radio side. Is the Goon Show started on the radio? All the Python started right. on the radio? So Glad you mentioned that because the Goon Show, radio was very important in Britain until the 60s, yeah. more than here. Yeah. Here, like when you listen to one of those Sherlock Holmes things, uh, they're pretty crap, really, compared to what you would get on the BBC's Sherlock Holmes versions, which were which were, you know, John Gielgud as Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Right. So what would happen was people would sit and listen to the radio. And one of the things on radio was journey into space because it was done cheaply and you could go, <laughs> here come the killer robots. <laughs> you know, you could get away with that stuff on the radio. And it wasn't until the radio producers who did the goon show Spike Milligan, who did Journey into Space, one of the, some of the more avant-garde things on radio, got promoted into TV that things began to change. So in fact, we were going to talk tomorrow about television production. You have no idea how important... Everybody thinks a guy sits in an attic and writes script, and then they say, this is really good, we're going to make it. It's not like that. It's a whole moving culture that changes you know, as you'll know if you've seen A Journey into Space and Time, is it? The, the, uh, an Adventure in Space and Time. It's, the, the it, time and space. Fantastic. I mean, everything about that is accurate, even up to the cameraman going, this will never work. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so radio, radio yeah. is very important. I mean, goodness gracious, a female producer? <laughs> My God. Forbid. Go and get some coffee. <laughs> so just carrying on with Sidney Newman, on top of Pathfinders on top of out of uh, out of this world. 
he also started the Avengers, the Avengers, the Avengers yes. which you know started out as effectively a spy drama, but then became what's now termed a spy fight. Mm-hmm. And yeah. again, huge influence on almost everything that came after. You look at certain periods of Doctor Who, and you can see the Avengers all over that. Oh yeah, of course, and, the new Avengers. Of course, that's a little further than we're talking today. And, and and here's the thing: with no budget, because British television had no budget. What they thought, what they got as a solution on ITV were puppets. <laughs> good puppets, really good. Puppets. Yes, but you see how the, and you can see that underneath this this leaden weight of let's do let's do Pride and Prejudice again. There was this, but we want to do something different. We want to do something different, and then suddenly, but even when Doctor Who was cancelled. There was still that, no, we're the drama department, and we're not going to, and the guy who did it, whose name escapes me now, was he? He ended up as the head of Michael Gray. No, I know Michael Gray, my God, I've told you this before, but why did, I asked him, why did you cancel Doctor Who? And he said, I didn't like it, which is great. You know, you go to Cadbury's and you say, what's your favorite, what's your best-selling line? Whole milk. Stop that, I don't like that. But there was a, there was a producer whose name escapes me, who I worked with on Bergerac and... Is it John Nathan Turner? No, no, no. It's, this, it, it's actually a, a, one, of the, one of the TOFs, one of the Oxford grads, who uh, basically suppressed Doctor Who at the end. He, I mean, it wasn't in his bloodstream. And, and John- tripods. They killed tripods. tripods. Is that Jonathan Powell? Is that Jonathan Powell. Powell. He's got it. Jonathan Powell. Little... You'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep throwing names. And Jonathan, no, Jonathan Powell is the guy. And, and still, but he was the last of the generation who I think if you'd said to him, I've got this sci-fi script, he would have said, get lost. Going slightly off topic here, but what's interesting with him is on uh, the special features on the Trial of Time Lord DVD, on one of the documentaries, they show very briefly a, a page of the script. And if you pause it, you can see his notes where he says, he's saying, I think this could be done better here, here, and here. And I don't think his problem was with Doctor Who as a concept. He just felt that it wasn't being done well. Well, well, it gives, put some more money into it then. Yeah, exactly. Right, sure. Um, but anyway, we're, we're going yeah. 20 years too far. <laughs> what we're trying to do. But, but what you see, put more money into something. But the story, that story about pre-Doctor Who British television science fiction, is the story about young people with new ideas fighting the orthodoxy. And the orthodoxy had the money and the power. And they also treated you like shit. Believe me, I've had to sit at dinner tables with them where they've just said, I mean, if you said, if you said I worked on Doctor Who, there was that wonderful English sound which goes, I mean, I think when the BBC brought Sidney Newman over from ABC, that was an attempt to freshen up the station. And I mean, obviously that wasn't a long-term thing because the BBC soon fell back into their old ways of sci-fi, what's that? We don't want anything to do with that. But, you know, he was, for me, the pivotal figure in that late 50s, early 60s Was he a mistake? Was he a mistake? Or or did he have... I mean... was there, we can't find anybody, let's bring Sidney Newman? Or did they say, no, oh, yeah. there he is, he's a good guy, let's get him? They thought that the um, BBC was stuffy, and I think the government put some mandates in, and you, you, you can't carry on like this. Yeah. But it, wasn't there something else about 
Doctor Who originally being planned as not just a, 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 as a an educational yeah. series. Yes, that's that's what that was Newman's whole idea. He, he yeah. did not want. I don't want people in silver suits and flash Gordon. No, no, no. 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 I want the French Revolution. But see, I, I think that's where the new the new Doctor has gone back to the beginning because she does do those historic episodes. Although she, they, they, you know, they had aliens, but you know. But what's so? What's interesting on that note is if you watch the Pathfinders trilogy, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Sidney Newman was the producer for, it has that educational element as well. There are pieces brought in where, you know, there's, it, the, the concept is a, a rocket goes into space with a bunch of kids on board by accident with, you know, a couple of adults, and they will. You know, the kids will always be like, what's going on? And then the adults will actually explain things scientifically so you get a science lesson with your drama in space. Right. <laughs> kind of. Imagine I've got an idea for a program. Boy, have I got that sentence down a million times. <laughs> I've got this idea for a program. What is it? And you're faced with, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Bloggs, who's now <laughs> the head of your department. <laughs> How do you sell it to him? You don't sell them the program. It's like it's like selling Star Trek as wagon train to the stars. <laughs> you know, you, you know you're not going to do that. But that's the way you approach him, and you say, you know, right now you would say, I've got this multiracial cast. Here's the money. You know, and you know you're not going to make that the program. But that's so every time you have to look at the politics of the of the situation, and and and. I don't know where sci-fi got a bad rap. I mean, for God's sake, what about what about Lord of the Rings? What about The Hobbit? Nobody thought of doing those, and yet they were the ultimate kind of Oxbridge, yeah. you know, clubby yeah, books. <laughs> but I remember when I was uh, 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 when I but this must have been in the seventies. I was going on the tube. Everybody had that big yellow version of the Lord of the Rings, yeah. and they were all reading it. And I'm thinking, why isn't this on TV? So interestingly, there was a graffiti was There was an article in the Telegraph, I think, two or three days ago around how Oxford rejected J.R.R. Tolkien. They were like, he was their greatest ever graduate, and they want nothing to do with him. Yeah. So this leads to, why didn't they adapt anything of uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, science fiction stories? You know, here he is, Adon. He's, you know, the most famous Christian apologist in England, and... Well, maybe that's the reason. <laughs> back then, back in the 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess it might, it, let's put it, I've got this great idea for a program, and it's, it's about a man who goes to the moon. Uh, immediately, somebody goes, "You know how much that's going to cost?" Okay, folks, Saturday morning movies. Yes, we used to go to see Saturday morning movies. What did we see? Captain Video. Yes, zombies of the stratosphere. You know, we saw for hungry for these things. Like Dan there, which was in full color but static. What we wanted was to see things moving, mm -hmm. yeah. and that's why we would go and see the worst ever science fiction movies because it was more. It was so exciting hearing five, four, three, two, one. You know, it was wonderful. And the other thing that actually started the, another big revolution in the sixties was the moonshots, yeah. because suddenly people were watching. And they were going, oh, and their imagination was being lit. And Captain Bloggs, who ran the department of the BBC, was retiring. 
you know, so he could go and watch another reaper. I, I keep going back to Pride and Prejudice because I think it's it's been it's been five years and there should be another one along in a minute. <laughs> it is her best novel. It is a really good piece, but oh, I've seen it. It's one of my favorite books. It is, a good and I love some of the adaptations, but. You know, come on, come on, give us a break. You know? Just just so you know there isn't anyone coming out next year. No. <laughs> Is there? At least they could change the ending. But can you imagine what the BBC thought of the saint? They tried, the BBC tried twice to make an American style series. Yeah. One was called Zero One with Nigel Patrick, filmed at these Metro Film Studios in where, where they shot 2001 in uh, in Britain. And the other one was called The Third Man yes. with Michael Rennie. And they didn't yes. do, they, they were shot like movies, but they, what they were trying to do was to copy ITV's The Saint, basically. Because okay. the, the Saint and Robin Hood and Sir Lancelot and all that stuff was really, the BBC didn't, like it at all. So, and I mean, on that note, though, Louis, I mean, I think the the thing to keep in mind is the BBC is publicly funded. The government funds it. They do not have to justify their existence. No. They do not have to push boundaries. They do not have to pander to what people want. Right. As far as they're concerned, everyone wants but, Shakespeare how? and they want another version of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> this is, this is, whereas <laughs> ITV, ITV had to get. The audience is in because it was paid for by commercials. I, I love the so, I love the phrase you just used, which is so British that even I have forgotten it. Pander to public opinion, <laughs> as opposed to respond to. So, so one of the, my notes was not the Avengers the first thing that actually was really popular in America that came from England. Uh, when it when it went into color and when it went the well, earlier even the black and white no the earlier the early Avengers I don't think were were they so the first three seasons were black and white season four was where it season four was black and white as well but that was the first one that got showed here no I remember the black and white Avengers here season four was black and white and it made it here yes. um, season made on film who who was who was the who was the woman uh, that was Dan Greg by then you see now um, now. Anna Blackman had already gone. Yes. Okay. And don't forget, the first series of The Avengers did oh, not actually feature Steed as the main guy. It was Ian Hendry. Ian Hendry was the main as, guy. As uh, Dr. Right. Keel, right. I think. No. Uh, the Avengers actually got so popular over here that I think the last two seasons were part funded by a U.S. broadcasting yes, company. So they could really start pushing the envelope because yeah. they had more money than almost yeah. any other British show. But I do think that the first Diana Riggs series came over here and that was a huge hit here. Yeah, but I think it's more a cultural thing about the science fiction, uh, the early programs. No matter how popular they were, and I would have thought after 1984 they'd have churned out a whole bunch of them. Uh, they, they resisted and they resisted and they resisted. And it would be really interesting to hear, to go back and find out, you know, this was really good in spite of it being science fiction. What that that thing to fantasy and science fiction was in people's heads, that they didn't think it was kosher. It was not real literature. You know, it, what, it Dickens, yes. Jane Austen, yes. Uh, you know, I, I can remember seeing there was a special slot, wasn't there, on Sundays at five, which was nothing but classic serials. They just, they just took every book out of the, you know, Trollope, anything. They just, just, but they... 
Big, no, Biggles was sold, wasn't it? Yeah. Biggles was sold to uh, a company here, no, a, a film company who, who suppressed it because they had another pro, a film being made at the same time, which was also about First World War and old war races. Biggles fantastic. Biggles and Dan Dare yeah. are the two products that have just been suppressed by somebody. And it's not until somebody like Disney with enough money comes along and says, open. Oh. Yeah. What you need to do is to find a producer who values the property, and I, I don't think you get many of those. They go, you know, what can we, what can, how can, how can we get more people to watch this Biggles thing? Let's set it in Dickensian England. Absolutely right. You know, let's star Kim Kardashian. Perfect. You know, that, I mean, there's a very good story about a book which I keep recommending, which is called Adventures in the Screen Trade. Um, it's a fantastic book about how all this works. And I'll never forget the Agatha, the Agatha movie, which was about the disappearance of Agatha Christie. Oh, yeah. And sh the story was about the disappearance of Agatha Christie. They didn't get enough money. And so they got a star in. They had Vanessa Redgrave, who wasn't big enough. So they got in Dustin Hoffman, who essentially came in with his writers and took over the movie. So it became a, a story about Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> and the, the producer who did uh, Chariots of Fire, he actually took his name off it. But that's the way in which a, a product gets changed, right. at least with the BBC. At least, wasn't there a Dracula on BBC Two, which followed the book? And it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, there is there is a certain leeway between all these things. But I, st I still think, as you're talking about pre-Doctor Who sci-fi, they didn't have the... Well, the fan base is amazingly important. Has anybody written a book yet about how important fans are to the production of these? Oh, I'm sure someone has. I mean, I mean in back in the day, I mean, I just think in my day when I was growing up watching Doctor Who, I watched the first episode, which somebody on a panel the other day said, I'm so honored to be on the same panel as Louis. He saw the first episode. I thought, my God, he's honored because I'm old. <laughs> Old and British. And British. I can remember standing at the top of the stairs, having watched it and, and, and shouting down to my aunt, Kennedy's been shot. <laughs> and then the next week we saw it again. And, and that's I, when it took off, is all the kids came out with their... Absolutely. The absolutely. And that and great a, moment in the movie. The plastic bag. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we all had our... The bag the wrist. <laughs> 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 but you see, all that would not have affected the BBC because they, the people who made the decisions didn't know. It's like an out-of-touch government right. that says, you know, they're, they're, they're going to like eating popcorn because that's what we can produce. Well, when you've got a machine working and the BBC is like a machine, right. back in the day, if you came up with an idea and said, mm. I want to make a film about coffee, they would say, well, which department can we put that into? Because we've already got a coat that you can wear. You know, and this is a, this is, I know, let's do a, a, a version of Pride and Prejudice where everybody drinks coffee. That's <laughs> we got the costumes. <laughs> Something you just said, Louis, gave me a phenomenal idea for an A-level paper. Maybe for history or government politics. An A-level paper. A-level. Compare and contrast BBC's governance circa 1963 and Theresa May's government circa 1963. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Which one is more useless? You will like what we have to sell. <laughs> but I mean, just one other thing. The, the thing that people loved, just to back up my point about drama on movies and TV before 1965, they all loved making movies about the war because the people who produced the movies had all been in the war and, and, and they were writing their history. And, and the people who were watching it. I, absolutely. So they knew all. The, now, if I show, I mean, I, I, I love and I did a lot of work once. I wanted to make a, 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 a TV show. I had a great idea for a TV show, which didn't work because they, they didn't get it. And I guess that's okay. It's a bit nerdy. I was going to call it Gordon Jackson's War. Because in every war movie is Gordon Jackson. And he's always the token Scott. Now, he grows, he grows old in World War II movies. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to see the different way in which the World War is, is done? Starting with San Dimitrio, San Francisco, San Dimitrio, San Francisco, and ending up with The Great Escape. And in it is Gordon Jackson. And get him into the studio and, and discuss with him how Britain's image of the war continued. But you've got seven or eight prisoner of war movies. And how interesting would that be? But that's the reason that culture of let's do another film about the war. I know we could set Pride and Prejudice in a prisoner of war camp. <laughs> Starring <But>, Idris Elba. <laughs> Edri oh, yeah. Idris Elba's in everything. So one of the contrasts that we have in America is a, a lot of our great science fiction in the 50s was done in the anthology series, mm -hmm. which we had both Alfred Hitchcock, which had a lot of science fiction in it, and Twilight Zone, which was an equal mix of yeah. science fiction and fantasy. And those things really shaped, I think, American taste. Out of limits, yeah. Limit, yeah. I think the anthology series, I mean, that's a, a huge point to make. Just yes. you, you look at how they tried to import that. Um, and with Out of This World in particular, they wanted to adapt hard sci-fi, yeah. short stories. Yeah. And part of the big problem, why Out of This World only got one season, was they really struggled to get the rights. Yes. They were all tied up with publishers, <laughs> and they wanted to do more, and they just couldn't. And then a few years later, it came back with Without of the Unknown, which is equally spotty in how much of it still exists. But it was the same concept, same person running it, Sydney Newman just took her from ABC, brought her over to the BBC, and said, we're going to do the exact same thing. So I remember one of those series got reported to America, and I and came, came over just one summer. And I think I was 13 or something. I loved it. It was just wow. But you see, that's very interesting, because we, I mean, I can remember sitting and watching American TV. Mm -hmm. I would not watch British TV, because the it was done on three cameras, it was done on video, and it looked like soap opera. Whereas I loved watching uh, all the Westerns because they were proper films. Right, you know, they right. were proper films. I was more interested in, in the stories. But then again, I, I watched The Avengers, which really was shot more American style. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was like, a story Particularly after season four, which was then when yeah. they made the transition from videotape to film, yes. to be able to sell it to the American market. And dynamic. Jeremy. Um, one thing that I think that's time back in sort of the departmental issues of the BBC, and I guess you kind of explained this stuff in the early 60s, but Doctor Who was always produced in the drama department and not the children's department. Right. Right. And that was a big thing. You know, the children's department was like, well, why is this show which is supposed to be catering to children, not get 
you know, uh, some drama to them while he's listening to a crap sci-fi show in the place where I take it and serve that. So it's an interesting way of having the wine sort of it was made that it always had to be made But I think that was something, you know, sort of adult, grown-up. But if you look at the family, the way the BBC the way the BBC was organized was yeah. in departments. Yeah, right. And it's not like now where you would say, I'll set up my production company, we'll do yeah. the movie. And that Minder and the Sweeney were the first ones yes. who started with three people around a desk and then they'd hire a cameraman and yeah. a sound recorder. Now, you would literally walk into a room full of people and if you didn't like the, sound rec the, the, the film editor, Screw you. Yeah, You're you know, going to have him because he's the guy who comes with this room. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You would not have had that. If, if, if somebody had come up with the idea of the Sweeney, which was basically uh, a British cop show, just like all the cop shows we have now, if he'd walked into the BBC, they would have said, great, there's your office. That's your crew. That's your secretary. Go to it. You couldn't say... I don't like that editor, and I don't like that cameraman because he doesn't film it the way I film it. There was only one way of filming it. Right. It's like at film school. How do you make a movie? You have a two shot, you have a medium shot, you have a medium shot, you have a close up, you have yeah. a close up, go away and edit it. Yeah. Nobody ever said, I want to do it differently because yeah. immediately you said that, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, they would say, that's not the way we do it. And I think the BBC was such a bureaucratic thing that you couldn't give yourself a personal a personal view. And in a, what's the first program that had a personal uh, view? I, Claudius. Yeah. Where he said, uh, Jack, what's his name? No, no, the, 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 the producer, he, he died. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he said, I don't want to do it with three cameras, even though it's in the studio and it's on video. What? But we've got two cameras spare then. I don't care. I want to do it this way. And we've got, we can edit videotapes, so we're going to do it that way. That never happened. And maybe that's the problem with sci-fi. Sci-fi didn't have a guy inside their organization saying, let's do it. It was, and that's why ITV was the one that had to do it and then import people in to do Doctor Who. And that's the way they subverted the beam. But meanwhile, there was a, a rigid structure that said, Pride and Prejudice is all we want, buddy. Oh, no, actually, it's worse than that. It's Dickens. Yeah. Yeah. Dickens, Dickens, Dickens. My God. Dickens and Cod Shakespeare. Cod Shakespeare. Cod Shakespeare. I can remember when I first went into eating, I was put with, Do with Dixon of Doc Green. Oh. And that was produced by the kids' department yes. at yeah. the time. That would be a great show. Wow. Yeah, that was... Yeah, I'm 68. It was still... He was... He could just about move. And yeah. they used to stand in front of the camera and say, evening all, and goodbye. And that was basically Dixon. <laughs> was, it, was it officially the children's part or the light entertainment part? Children's, I think. Okay. Light entertainment never produced drama, I don't think, did it? But you see, there you have it, light entertainment department. They used to say, I've got a great idea for a program. Which, which department will produce it? Yeah. That's not the second question. Yeah. The second question is, what is it? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I once went to, with a, with a script, to, uh, with my writing partner, we got a, 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 the head of Pebble Mill, Birmingham, uh, drama department. And he said, he took the, the, the envelope with the script and said, well, yeah, boys, the uh, thing is, we don't have enough money 
But if you could produce a multi-ethnic cast, I know the Asian department have, a, have money and they want to put money into drama. <laughs> so he never opened our envelope. Because what it was about, at a certain level of management, it's not about what the great idea is. It's about how can we ferret this money away and how can we get, if we, if we produce two Asian actors, we can get money from the Asian department, you know? So, and, and so, like in the, maybe in the production panel tomorrow, you'll see that it's not about, I've got a great idea for a show, let's write it and do it. It's about all sorts of other things, like I don't like him and that star. If we can get that, if we can get Tom Cruise, my God, we'll, we'll, we'll put $80 million into Doctor Who. <laughs> so, with that thought, um, we're basically out of time. So um, I'm going to wrap up by saying these early sci-fi shows, a number of what survives of them are available on DVD. You can import it from Amazon UK, Quatermass, Ape Andromeda, Pathfinders, Out of This World, Out of the Unknown. You can get it sent to you here. Find yourself a way to, to watch a multi-region uh, DVD. Get a very small te television set. Yeah. And okay. then phenomenal. Go, go so. find a CRT that's about this big, you know. Go to Quintermass in the Pit or getting a Blu-ray release, Mr. Lock. And the Pit in Region B, so Europe came out last summer um, and looks phenomenal on Blu-ray. And don't think of it as being the movie. That's a different uh, thing completely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all for coming. As I yeah. said, we were recording this for a hopefully live podcast. The sound quality is good. Well, we hope that you enjoyed that. It was a really fun panel to be a part of, and while we meandered all over the place during the conversation, I think that there were some really great snippets of information in there. We will be back next week with a regular episode in which we'll be discussing the Dalek invasion of Earth, and another bonus episode with the second set of interviews from Hulanta will be available sometime in the near future as well. Thank you, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with myself, Anthony Williams, and with a special guest spot from friend of the podcast, Louis Robinson. This bonus episode, Pride and Prejudice Again, was recorded in front of a live audience at Hulanta on the 4th of May, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on either Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And remember, you can always rely on BBC to remake Pride and Prejudice Again. <laughs>